0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We're particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, this is Stephen Moe. I'm really glad you could join me today because we get the chance to speak with Peter Wells from the Food Resilience Network. Now, if you look twice at how long this interview is, You'll notice it's one of the longest ones that I've ever done. And the reason is that we cover so many different topics, not only food. We also talk about theater, drama, dance, and his experiences living in Costa Rica and Scotland, as well as his time with the Food Resilience Network and setting up the Otakara Orchard. This is exactly the type of interview that I love and why I enjoy doing this podcast so much, because we
1: touch on such a variety of topics. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Peter. Building cities, we don't know what it's going to who's going to be in it or what it's going to look like in a hundred years um, But we can design some really basic Parameters to support that and to make sure that it it stays a healthy place mm. For the coming centuries and yeah. that's that's really why I why I make food forests. Yeah um, It's because I want to set up those ecosystems that are going to bring out the best in people. Mm-hmm
0: Now it's kind of fun to vary things up, so next week we're going to be talking with Sarah Kessens, who's a research fellow at the University of Canterbury, and the topic that I discuss with her is genetic engineering, as well as talking about NASA and her experiences in applying to become an astronaut. So it's another one of those really broad, diverse, ranging conversations where we touch on many different topics. Now let's get into the interview with Peter. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Peter Wells from the Food Resilience Network. Thank you for joining me today.
1: No, thank you so much for having me, Stephen.
0: It's a pleasure. And we're going to talk about a number of different things, mainly food-related, I think, because Mm -hmm. uh, you're involved here in Otakoro Orchard, um, but also with some of the things that are happening in terms of community gardens and and growing food, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we get into that and what you're doing now here in Christchurch, and Uh, I find it's helpful to go back with uh, the people I'm interviewing and just work out where they're from (laughs) because it gives context to what they're doing now. So if you could just really rewind and tell us a bit of your background and and what's brought you to this place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So if we go all the way back to the beginning, I come from Seattle, Washington in the northwest corner of the U.S., um, which is, of all things, Christchurch's sister city. Hmm. um but in seattle seattle's a beautiful city it's a garden city um it's a really lively place great culture good people really good coffee um it rains for about nine months out of the year though Hmm. so in coming here i really can't complain that um when we get four seasons in a day yeah um in seattle is that the origin of starbucks or is it near there yes it is actually um Seattle is the origin of Starbucks of uh, Microsoft um, do you claim Nirvana as well is yes that? we do definitely Absolutely. yeah
0: because they were just just south I think weren't they mm. of, yeah
1: yeah they usually people who are kind of in the surrounding area tend to uh, sort of lump themselves into the city which yeah. is understandable
0: yeah Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful area,
1: beautiful part of the world. Um, so that was where you grew up. You had your childhood there. Yeah, I I grew up in Seattle, um, for pretty much my whole life. Um, had family on the East coast down in, in Kentucky and up in Massachusetts. Um, so I did, I, as I was growing up, I did get to see a fair bit of the country and, um, sort of bouncing between relatives and getting to visit them and, Mm. uh, spent some time in the Southwest, which I really fell in love with, um, those sort of Mediterranean and desert landscapes hmm. um, of quite course. a contrast to where you were from huh? No, absolutely um, you'll find that most people in the Northwest um, whether or not they like to admit it have some kind of seasonal depression um, and so I really I really um I got tired of all the rain and um, the persistent gloom you know that sort of hangs around during the winter
0: and what sort of child were you what sort of things did you enjoy doing oh gosh
1: um Let's see. I was, um, a very, um, creative, spontaneous, passionate, um, sort of a wild card kind of person growing up. Um, that these days I'm, I'm a fair, quite a bit more reserved, but, right. um, but yeah, I'd say when I was growing up, I was, I was pretty full of energy and bouncing off the walls. Um, uh, I had a great imagination. I was very eloquent, but it was also just graphic and so I um, So I uh, in kind of going through school and whatnot. I was pretty pretty challenged in terms of uh, being able to write cohesively and, and Do my assignments and so on. So mm. so naturally I ended up in arts um, So I from the time I was in high school thereabouts I really got into theater um, I got into theater and subsequently um, into dance. Um, and those two things really shaped uh, more than anything else, shaped what I do today um, in ecology. Uh, that of all things, i um I got really, really turned on by this um this kind of phenomena that happens with people when they're um when they're on stage and when they're in that kind of theatrical setting. they get to um, with the right kind of tools, they get to pretty much, Open uh, open all the all the doors and the locks they put on themselves, um, and just play around with who they are. Um, they get to just kind of try on entirely new um, new versions of who they are, what they could be. And when when you find it in a th- in a sort of theater art setting, when you put people on a stage like that and and you sort of just turn them on to, to those worlds that they they engage with, um, you you see this. Totally different side of them. Not only like, do people kind of get this chance to step outside themselves um, and really become these incredible vivid forms of, of people and humanity, but, but the audience also gets drawn into that. It creates a kind of gravity to it and you'll, and you'll feel that whenever you go to the theater and you're in a, you're watching a performance that's just really magical, it's really electric um you feel this kind of palpable, static, this humidity that kind of runs around around the audience. Um, so what what really captivated me about that was that, you know when you when you get that feeling in that atmosphere, people walk out of a theater ready to to really take on themselves, their work, their life, um, and to do something in the world. they They just get charged. Um, but so often, what happens is that that atmosphere dissipates very, very quickly. When you leave the theater, when you leave that that stage, um, then that sort of that sort of magic humidity that gets created um, often just sort of dissipates out into the world, and it doesn't um, leave a lasting mark.
0: Let's just talk about that for a little bit. Um, you're saying that that theater and dance, mm-hmm. being on the stage, connecting with an audience. That's actually what you feel like is informing what you're doing today.
1: Mm, Absolutely. Mm. Um, In part because that, um, more than anything, that taught me really great people skills. um, That Even when I was studying anthropology, I, I felt like I had learned more about people from theater, and arts than I did from just about anything else I studied mm. um, in all my education.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, let's see how that weaves into the story as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, the first time that you remember being on stage or, you know, that you had that electric mm-hmm. sense of, wow, this is something special. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a vivid memory for you? Like, was it a particular play or, or thing that you were doing at school or?
1: Gosh, um, yeah, the, let's see the first, when I first, um, and And this is true of many people when they first get into into theater and stage, whatever it is, any kind of performance. Um, if they, especially when they're teenagers that um, when they first get into it, uh, they have all of these um all these layers that they build on top of themselves on on just um on who they really are and how they and how they just communicate themselves to the world. there's in um in high school and so on, people. Are, it's so easy for people to just um, box themselves in and not um, always want to fit in or not get hurt or um, you know, just have all of this um, uh, Baggage on trying to just um, just be a uh, you know, just a piece of the puzzle and not um, And not uh, rock the boat at all. Mm. And so that's like I, I watched um myself and a lot of my cohort. Um, Go through that as uh, as we were in this sort of uh, um, acting ensemble we all um, it's it's uh, we all kind of got to over time just trust each other and um, and really be able to take those layers off and step outside ourselves Mm -hmm. and sort of realize those um, that full form of who we are Mm -hmm. because it's an opportunity it's almost like a door
0: opening that you can step through and be a different personality at least for an hour Mm -hmm. or 30 minutes or whatever Mm -hmm. And I think that I've, what I've noticed is things like improv, mm-hmm. you know, that you're relying on your team member to say yes to whatever the situation is that you're proposing in the routine or whatever mm-hmm. it is, isn't it? It's, so there's a bit of trust involved as well mm-hmm. a, a, a among the group who's performing.
1: Yeah. And that's a really, I would say that's an incredibly valuable lesson for whatever you're doing in the world, that um, if, you have, if you have the right chemistry and the trust with the people you work with, um, and if you all if you all bring, you know, your own your own passion and skills to the table, you can be unstoppable It's mm. really delightful to see whenever you um, when you find, uh, you know, whether it's an acting ensemble or a or a um project group or a, a team who really implicitly understands that whether or not they say it It's um, it's a really wonderful chemistry mm. to watch.
0: Well, that's the synergy isn't it between any any business or group or? Um, whether it's volunteer or paid, you know, if people coming together are able to um, almost like a musical band, you know, that Mm -hmm. there's a bassist and a drummer and a singer and they, and yet they're all individuals, but then something amazing is created when they're all together. And I guess that's what you're describing here is that that teamwork in the theater is the same type of thing. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're in high school (laughs) and you're involved in theater and the arts is that uh, an indication of what you were going to study at university or, you know, the um, or did you know what you wanted to do at that point? Yeah,
1: um, I would say at that at that point in my life, I was pretty convinced I was going to uh, end up in performing arts and have a career in theater, dance and um, and stage work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, I was I was pretty bent on that. Um, so that is. Uh, between that and a really having a real um, love of travel that was instilled in me from a very young age um, I between those two things I um, went to a little small liberal arts school um, outside of Baltimore mm-hmm. um, for college uh, which essentially had a um, had a uh, great um, really great interesting faculty um, really competent people, um, mm-hmm. small classes, uh, g- um, great theater from what I saw great theater, amazing dance department too. Mm-hmm. Um, and also everyone who attended mm-hmm. was required to study abroad at some point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you can imagine the kind of the, the cast of characters that that brings out that mm-hmm. um, that I found that was really enticing and so, I um, took a leap and went went over there to uh, get a change of scenery from the soggy Northwest. Mm. Um, and what was the name of that college? It was Goucher College. Mm. There, what I found was, uh, after a couple of years of, um, you know, taking taking all my basic requirements and so on, I um I ended up taking a handful of classes uh, in philosophy, um, and alongside that in um, in peace studies um, and what did it for me was really a it was really a combination of um, of uh, I think Paulo um, Freire's uh, text Pedagogia of the Oppressed um, was an incredible book on um, asking questions around uh, solving the deep inequities of the world um, by fixing the sort of means of cultural production essentially people taking ownership of their own knowledge and their, um, and their, uh, cultural integrity. Um, and between that and, and studying a little bit of, um, of essentially the, um, deep seated sort of climate, um, and environmental crisis that we're in the throes of now and resource politics, um, between those, those three things, I, um, I had a, a couple of classes that really, really transformed how I thought and and absolutely challenged me to to work at a at a sort of more um, at a higher level. That really got me into environment um, as a as an area of study. So you went in thinking that you were going to
0: be performing arts, mm-hmm. dance, theater, and
1: you emerge uh, with a, quite a different focus from that. <laughs> yeah it's a in uh in the space of two years i ended up um i went from uh thinking I was going to spend my life in theater to uh looking for an outlet um to sort of ad- address these really deep systemic crises we've created in the world over mm-hmm. the past several hundred or to thousand years mm-hmm. um
0: and I think you had, you did have some time abroad, didn't you? I think you went to Costa Rica. Was that
1: influential in that thinking as well? Or? That was, a, I would say, that was actually a result of it. That I, um, for me, uh, somewhere in my second year, I um, was sort of dumbstruck by the magnitude of challenges that we're faced with, and the fact that, um, I mean, dis- despite my love, my deep. Deep love for the arts and the way it brings out the best in people. Um, that when people are continually beset by um, disaster, um, uh, famine, war, and and so on, there's um, there's very little outlet to actually tap into those functions. And so, what I what I really set myself on was creating the kind of places um, that. Empowered and inspired people and brought out the best in them. Hmm. And At some point along there I stumbled into permaculture design um, And that was a huge catalyst for me that suddenly I saw this really accessible toolkit of of Skills from the pa- you know ranging from the past 13,000 years um, to to really tangibly fix um, so many of the of the problems that be in the world. Mm. Well, I want you to explain what permaculture design is. I'm just curious, what exactly is it getting at? So permaculture is the mimicry of forest ecologies um, to make uh, useful landscapes for people and other species. It's pretty much what we um, and what it is is a sort of an amalgamation of of techniques um and design tools that have been compiled over the from both indigenous forest management um and also modern gardening and agriculture so all of that was um rolled together in the 1970s by uh, two australians named uh, bill mollison and david holmgren um and they they sort of uh, wrapped all of this kind of odd conglomerate of, uh, of techniques and practices together, um, and called it permaculture as a as an abbreviation of permanent culture or permanent agriculture. For the last thirty years, that's been a really, um, really sort of uh, small counterculture, uh, a very kind of a spiritual hippie um, sort of subgenre of of um, sustainability. Um, but really in the last uh, decade what we've seen is an amazing change whereby it's started to come into the mainstream mm-hmm. um and it's gone from being um from being this little tiny uh this tiny oddball um kind of underdog of a field to actually being a, a really applicable um and uh resilient framework for people to to change their places mm-hmm. yeah well, I think
0: some examples of that is what we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, so maybe we'll park that part of it because mm-hmm. I'm really curious about what happened next in terms of you're still at university and and then you know you you'd gone to Costa Rica. Actually, could we talk a little bit about that? What were some of your impressions there, and what did you learn Absolutely. being in a different
1: culture and language and all that type of thing yeah um so funnily enough i uh, I really um at that at that point, let's say I, um, I start. I essentially took on anthropology as a major, um, and under no pretense, I pretty much did that as an excuse to study um, people and culture as a fulcrum to uh, to change the world and and through sustainability, um, and really just to kind of pick up all these. Uh, pieces of disparate disciplines that I loved so dearly, uh, from arts to, um, to landscapes to, you know, human systems and, uh, and sort of, uh, really combined that and put it all mm. together. It was a
0: nice basket to put all these different things into.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so that also enabled, what that enabled me to do was, uh, study abroad a couple times was, mm. um, first to Uh, to edinburgh um i took i spent about a month there um studying studying modern dance uh at dance Base, which is their national center for dance um Mm -hmm. which is right underneath the edinburgh castle which is oh i I miss that so dearly it's it's an incredibly beautiful place Mm -hmm. um i've i've really fell in love with that city um but also that was um, a huge parallel that that helped me draw was between um was between the sort of uh The way that landscapes are created and the way that people and arts are created right Um, that really what I do today is really just choreographing landscapes So you saw a direct connection there between the people and the landscapes and and their environment yeah in the way that um, we are humans are implicitly uh, created by our places um, and the environments around us, that they, that they continually uh, sculpt um, the way we think and move and function um, and vice versa, that we in turn sort of carve, carve out the, the spaces we occupy and, mm. and alter their character to our own needs.
0: Mm. It's a wonderful thought. I was listening to a podcast the other day with Krista Tippett um, called On Being, and she was speaking with an Irish poet, John O'Donohue, mm-hmm. And it's a really special interview. If anybody wants to listen to something, that's really challenging. But anyway, he was describing how um, that oftentimes the poor in society are doubly impoverished because of the places that are kind of allocated for them, that, that children would grow up amongst concrete and not having parks accessible and outdoor, you know, that, that ultimately nature has so much to give f- for expanding people's vision, and yet oftentimes the poor are doubly impoverished by the locations that they grow up. You know, we talk about cycles of poverty, and in his example was actually the architecture and the buildings themselves are inherently putting people back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It's a really fascinating topic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I found, uh, only, uh, sort of later in, later in my studies, um, I took some time and, and dug into that of how, um, of how, uh, environment, uh, shapes our mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and just found some um, amazing work that's been done on that. Right. Um, down to the point where, uh, as you say, Stephen, um, where some researchers in the UK um, found when they were doing mental health surveys of uh, intense urban areas, they found this correlation between uh, lack of social engagement, loneliness, and depression um, correlated to a very specific landscape feature, which was a a balcony. Um, and what they pretty much found was that in this massive sample size, everyone, who lived in one of those uh sort of soviet era concrete towers with mm. the little the little like 2 or 3 meter balconies yeah, yeah. um pretty much everyone in those buildings uh exhibited those same those same features right. um, of mental illness hmm. um because they're just the the way those the way those buildings are designed is um is so abrasive to how people function
0: right yeah yeah, well, we could do a whole podcast on that topic, I think, because it's fascinating. I lived in Tokyo for a number of years, and um, in Tokyo they have to use the space as efficiently as they can. <laughs> and so we had friends who, you know, they were living on, I think it was the 60th floor or extremely high, you know, with a tiny, tiny balcony, and that was the outdoor space. And mm. um, I, I mean, the, I guess the, the opposite of that is that when when I lived in Japan, it gave me a renewed sense and appreciation of nature that I did find, that I did see. Like because I was so in a concrete jungle, when I would come across a park, it was almost a double joy mm-hmm. <laughs> of finding trees and grass and things, and and also just appreciating the little things, um, which I think sometimes in our culture, you know, like I've got a backyard and we've got trees and grass, and I probably take it for granted. You know, reality is. Um, compared to the vast majority of the population, incredibly lucky to to have those resources mm. so um, just with Edinburgh, describe again, you said that you fell in love with that place and you know Edinburgh castle and things what What was it that
1: made you have such an affinity
0: for it so quickly
1: mm. let 's see I think it was just the for me it was that um for about, uh, about three weeks, um, me and, uh, the group I was with, we we're doing, um, essentially we are in, in training, um, from morning till night, um, just pretty, pretty much around the clock. Um, and then on sort of out outside of those windows, we got to kind of run around and adventure in the city. Um, I was really lucky that uh, my professor, who was uh, leading us there, um, that was her home. That she was uh, she was originally from Edinburgh, and mm-hmm. um, and knew all the little spots and all and all the sort of nooks and crannies, and um, got to kind of take us on this odyssey of um, of this uh, of this kind of ancient city, um, which had so much new life in it. Mm-hmm. And of course, we were we were there in uh, it would have been August, um, going into September, and so we were there for. The Fringe Festival, right, which is the largest performing arts festival in the world, and that was um, that was absolutely magical, that you got to uh, literally just watch the entire city um, sort of come out of this midsummer lull and just erupt into this um, into this uh, just uh, this reactor of um, of just amazing ideas and people. Um, and uh, and I got got to see the whole place, you know, kind of uh, Just hum with electricity Mm -hmm. Um, and that was uh, that was really incredible for me to see how such an um, Such an ancient place um, was set up so well to facilitate that kind of human well-being Mm -hmm. Um, And that left a really profound effect on me of looking at how do we especially in the United States? We abuse this terribly. Um, how do we create these um, how to create places that really support people and kind of bring bring them to life as as that did? Mm. Yeah,
0: provide the opportunity for those engagements and challenges to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. mm Yeah And you you mentioned you were studying dance there.
1: Is that right? Mm-hmm um, What what type of dance were you studying there? Um, at the time we were studying mostly modern, but uh, we did a little bit of um, on the edges of that we studied a little bit of Kaylee because of course um, you have to over there mm-hmm. uh, and then we um, little bits of uh, Hip-hop and um, actually learned a, uh, just a fraction of voguing and wacky and these sort of really really cool sub sub of dance um, And that was also in that same time frame was the first time I got to see Deborah Kolker who is the um, this um, incredible Brazilian choreographer and I that was one of the few performances I've seen that made me cry my eyes out. Um, that was by far the most beautiful thing I've seen on a stage. Wow. What was it that made it so special? Um, well, it was a adaptation of Tatiana, um, that her company performed, but it was just the, um, even from far off in the audience, you can tell with a company, um, how, how connected they are and how,
0: what we were talking about earlier, the, and sync, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. How they relate to each other and so on, and it was just that it was the most um, athletic company I'd ever seen. Um, that they uh, they move like water. You, know, you often hear people say that of performers, but it was so true that they um, they were so alive and syncopated, um, and uh, it was very organic. That in in some other forms of arts like ballet, things um, sometimes things feel very stifled. Mm-hmm. Um, and very kind of, uh, confined to, to these, um, high ideals of how a body should move or should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that it was, it was just so, um, it was so fresh and they, you know, they, uh, all the dancers like played off the set pieces and, um, and of course the choreography was incredible. Mm. So, yeah.
0: So can you just tell me a bit about modern dance? Like what does that actually
1: involve? Mm. So dance has gone through a really interesting evolution um, uh, where it's so if we go all the way back to the start, we sort of um, uh, dances for the most part, this very um, sort of intimate cultural ritual around the world. You see that that it stems from, uh, you know, times of festival or of, you know, certain things for marriages or deaths or, um, you know, these very poignant cultural uh, mm. Uh, flashpoints or you know points of catharsis or um or whatnot um and, and
0: sometimes having some special rules around how the engagement would work right and yeah. ballroom dancing or you know different patterns of steps and, mm-hmm. mm.
1: and uh, as time goes on and as uh, i dare say as um you know sort of a quote-unquote civilized culture becomes more complex especially in europe you see all these um all these uh, sort of small country dances get um, get uh, weight added to them. They become more weighted with these very very precise um, cultural you know cultural parameters and mm. exactly how you must do these things. And ballet is a perfect example mm. of that. Evolved out of uh, these sort of uh, more ballroom type dances, um, you know, thanks thanks people like Balanchine and so on. We get um, uh, ballet became a very um, a very limited form of dance that it was sort of this ideal of physical um, physical and artistic and cultural perfection, mm. um, but has for many, many decades and centuries has actually kind of destroyed the people who are partaking in it um, that uh, people have a there's a very a very small window um, of access to ballet of who is deemed as capable of doing it or what you're supposed to look like or how you're supposed to move and um mm-hmm. and there's going to be this very um this is very sort of uh uh demeaning and um claustrophobic culture around it. Mm. Um, it's so, ironic
0: that a dance or that dance which is kind of fluid and able to be moved should be packaged into a rigid structure, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that it <laughs> is.
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point you make is that it's a as a expression of the human experience it only encompasses a tiny a, a tiny segment mm. of that um, mm. of that breadth
0: yeah so is modern dance a reaction against that type of thing is that
1: precisely modern dance was um was born as a as a direct counterpoint to that and and that has since evolved into many other forms like mm. um contemporary dance is uh is, um has been a response to modern um and and so on and so on there's uh now there's actually a a beautiful um constellation of different dance forms in mm. around the world um that have born been born out of that sort of that contrast between um ballet and modern and mm. finding and sort of taking taking pieces of each and yeah. making you know dance theater and contemporary ballet and uh, yeah. Yeah, one of my daughters does ballet, but the
0: the dance school also has a hip-hop class, you know, and they've got a jazz class, and there's a variety that is possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just, I'm curious, is there anybody who was a dancer that you would love to have seen that you were not able to see? Is it it the type of thing where, you know, I love love basketball. Mm -hmm. I would love to have seen Michael Jordan play basketball. But mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, <laughs> is it is it a similar type of thing in the dance world where you, there's definite stars that you would love to have seen or be able to go and watch?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you'll you'll hear that said of, you know, if anyone and companies, you know, it just as teams right. and bands get their own sort of cult following, you get companies that yeah. have that. So whether it's the um, whether it's like, you know, the Russian Imperial Ballet or it's um, or it's Alvin Ailey or um or whether it's uh you know people just want to go the see the American Ballet Theater in Missy Copeland um, mm. or um, you know the Kirov or the or you know the um I got to say New Z- uh Royal New Zealand Ballet is uh, is pretty special I right. I really love what they've done mm. um, there's a whole again there's a whole constellation of of mm. people yeah um, making beautiful work and yeah and Appealing to different tastes. Yeah, it's a lot to see out there.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful And that's why I love these interviews because often my own world gets expanded a little bit mm. because i I realize how little I know About that world, but there it is. So mm. yeah, it makes me curious to want to learn more, you know, <laughs> it's good
1: but, but I would say this that I mean if like yourself if when you have a um, When you have a very deep understanding of of your own work of your own your own worlds that you engage with um you get a you get a very clear understanding of the capability of the others out there Mm -hmm. you know you understand by knowing your own field in depth you you become very aware of how much you don't know about the complexity of many others Mm -hmm. and that gives you that kind of appetite and that curiosity yeah
0: Which is what we were saying before we started recording, that these podcasts, in a way, they open up worlds or insights into such a variety of topics and and areas, which is, I was sharing, that's one of the reasons I'm loving doing them, is that I'm learning as we're going, you know, like... I didn't know that we were going to talk about dance here. I thought it was going to be just about food and Mm -hmm. resilience, which we're coming to, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I think it's worth exploring some of these other topics as well. Yeah. So um, maybe we'll just move on a little bit and you've, you've come through there. How did you get involved um, after university with the whole food resilience and permaculture design and that type of thing? Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, to sort of, uh, to sort of bring this, bring this forward. Um, after I was, uh, you know, after I kind of uh, took a detour from arts into um, per- into anthropology and permaculture and food forests, um, I studied abroad again in Costa Rica for some time, and uh, and that really honed my interests in on on creating um, resilient systems that uh, that would sort of um, outlast people. You know, watching the sort of um, the sort of persistent cycles of engagement and disengagement in a in a university setting, Um, I really wanted to create places that would um, that would sort of weather all of those, you know, those uh, droughts of human interest um, and uh, and also improve themselves over time. Um, So I so when I when I got back to um, back to the West Coast, I went down to California for a bit um, and there I I sort of, you know, networked my way into the sustainability world down there, Um, got design certified in permaculture, um, met this really, really fantastic cast of people there who were working on these issues um, and eventually went um, went back to Seattle um, and got started um, helping out on the Beacon Food Forest, who uh, one of my old mentors had helped set up and kind of create Um, and so I got I got stuck in there, um, was doing uh, landscape work on the side and eventually, um, uh, grant writing for a dance studio and, uh, but mostly I was really just kind of learning the guts of, of, um, a success of what, how to make a successful place, a food forest. Um, a food forest is really just one tool in the box of permaculture, that it is a, um, a, essentially a small uh, choreographed forest um, which essentially produces a whole load of free food for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Beacon Food Forest, which, which is the one I'm talking about, um, got started about in 2009. Um, my old mentor and uh, essentially led a, a design course for a bunch of folks in Seattle asking them to put together a, a big um, essentially a big public edible landscape for the city. Um, given that about one in seven people in Seattle are food insecure, meaning that they don't have access to um, healthy, fresh, culturally appropriate food, um, this, is a huge, this is a huge issue, and, it's, um, and that's pretty consistent across the United States and many, many places in the world.
0: Mm. So had edible food forests, had they been created
1: in other places, or was this sort of breaking new ground? Or? Yeah, there was a, there were a few examples across um in pockets of the US and in um and in places like the UK and in Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Um, and these were all modeled off of uh, tropical home gardens which came out of um, India for the most part and many places across Southeast Asia. But um but this was relatively new and not many people had done this on public land. So when a group of people in this, um, in this uh, class came up with a, a huge 13-acre plan for a uh, grass lawn in South Seattle, um, this, was, this was something pretty new. And mm-hmm. fortunately, there were some folks from the neighborhood there who were present at that meeting, and they just lit up and said, you need to take this to the city because we've been thinking about doing something like this ourselves but didn't really have the words to put to it. Um and so sure enough they in this was around two thousand nine, they they took this, you know, beautiful big thirteen acre intensive plan with all these ponds and groves and and you know vast flowing gardens and whatnot to the city, and the city turned them down. They had uh to their to the city of Seattle's credit, um, they had never seen anything like this before. Right. They yep. had they had no idea of um, you know, how this was gonna play out and they uh and they were um you know had a, had some severe doubts about the the efficacy of the whole idea. Mm. So not to be deterred, these um this group of folks spent the next three years going back and organizing with the community, mm. um, checking in with the whole Beacon Hill community um, and making sure that everyone was on board with it, everyone knew what they were doing, and that they really got the whole community's ideas um, written into into the um into the whole plan and the and the essence of what it was Mm -hmm. um
0: so going back to our picture of the theater you're mm -hmm. involving the audience as well Mm -hmm. in the
1: in the production on the stage it sounds like absolutely you need a essentially you need a a piece of a piece of work or a story a narrative that's compelling enough um and well and well acted enough for the entire audience to get brought in yeah to feel that to feel that magnetism Mm -hmm. Um,
0: So just describe what it's doing now or what it's like now, like how, how big is it
1: and what sort of food is being produced and people mm -hmm. involvement, that type of thing. Yeah. So we are, let's see. So from breaking ground in 2012, after, um, the city department by department, they really came on board, Mm -hmm. um, and came to the party. So after a whole lot of engagement, um, we started in 2012, um, and now we are in, uh, 2018. Um, To date, we have involved, um, it's been run by a close group of maybe maybe 20 to 30 people from the very start um, who sort of tap in and out to leadership roles, but there's a wider volunteer pool of several hundred. um, And in the whole history of the site, we've seen about 5,000 plus people work on it. Hmm. Um, So we have currently about Uh, two going on three and a half acres in production uh, growing close to 400 species uh, which is yielding about um, by our best estimates about four about uh, 4,000 pounds or 1,800 kgs of just free accessible food um, for anyone who wants to come through the site and take some of it right Um, so in the next is there a
0: particular focus on the type of food that's produced like is it vegetables fruit or a real range
1: and everything we like everything right (laughs) um so we i mean of course we we design with our stomachs um Mm. and just sort of putting in what what is going to be um compatible with the native ecology right um and resilient to uh, drought and climate um changes but also is just going to be abundant beautiful and really tasty and that's the permanent culture aspect of it right that it's actually unique
0: and bespoke to the landscape and it fits naturally mm-hmm. with wherever it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I love how you're using the present tense talking about it. <laughs> mm. We're here in Christchurch talking about this. You obviously feel a strong connection back there and what's going on. You stay up to date with the progress and mm-hmm. things?
1: Yeah. So we, of, I still get all the emails uh, every day and it's just um, and it's, uh, you know, when you when uh, you come together with a really a diverse bunch of people mm. to create um such a cohesive idea mm-hmm. uh, when everyone comes around that comes to the table with that same intent um you you really just you build amazing bonds with people mm. and it's it's family you know that mm. i if if i went anywhere in the world i would still i would still keep in touch with them and i would still get to still get to see and and sort of hear through through all their correspondence what yeah. um what's happening there and and feel delighted by it.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. I love the connection that you've got there because so often people move from, even from city to city, Mm. and yet there's a severing of ties with whatever Mm -hmm. they were involved with in in the previous place. And I love the idea that maybe we're moving into a time where, you know, we're become more almost global citizens and it's an overused phrase, but mm-hmm. you get the point yeah. is that, you know, you're from America, but you're living here in Christchurch, but you still have those strong connections back to, to that particular place. And, you know,
1: I think that's really important because it's ultimately the networks and the people are what mm-hmm. matters. So, yeah. yeah. And, and you find as you kind of move across, um, across the country and, and the world with this work that there's just an incredible shared ethic Mm. Um, that comes into it and we saw that really come to a head um in around I'd say twenty um 2016 we had a a researcher from Virginia Tech um named catherine bukowski who came through um mm. and uh and we were just you know she she was kind of uh, putting together a network of all the community food forests in the country and we're like, yeah, so this is great, you know, how it, and uh, just kind of hearing the whole story and, and so on. And so, we asked, you know, what's um, so what is going on out there? And she told us essentially, you guys realize that you've propagated about 50 times across the United States,
0: hmm.
1: and that was that was a bit dumbfounding because we um, we had been very intent on just just creating this this one place and doing it really well um, and just making sure that we did justice to the community around it. Um, but in in this sort of global and digital age, none none of this happens in isolation. So as um, a few stories were written about this early on in the um, early 2010s, um, which really went like wildfire across the country. And sure enough, um, there were just a lot of. There have been a lot of people in a lot of other parts of the world who have kind of mm-hmm. picked this up. Mm-hmm. Um, we are by no means the first, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but this was one of the first times uh, this has had this had happened on public land and mm-hmm. in the United States right. that that really captured a lot of people's imaginations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are lucky that uh, it's sort of it's rocketed around the country as such, but also it's um, we. Uh, We got contacted by the government of Taiwan who flew our co-founders out to lead workshops in I think Taipei and a couple other places um, Who just they absolutely Understood they Mm. absolutely understood what we were trying to do and wanted it for their people in their place Mm. Um, And we also got this email at some point from these guys named Bailey Perryman and Matt Morris um, Who were from this place called Christchurch, New Zealand. All right (laughs) and they they were uh, sort of telling us, uh, about this similar project they had going on here. Hmm. Uh, and we're just curious if we had any advice for them. Wow. And sure enough, um, uh, yeah, we, we kept in touch with them and we're really, we're really curious about this, um, this Otakara orchard. And, and sure enough, I, uh, I was lucky enough to be traveling here to visit a friend in, um, in the North Island and get, ro- Got roped into some other adventures along the way mm-hmm. um, about two years ago this was and um, and sure enough, uh, ended up down here in Christchurch and got to meet a uh, just a small handful of people here for a few days. but um but in very much in the same way I did with Edinburgh, I fell in love with the place that Christchurch was because it, it's just ability um, to define itself. There was this sort of uh, that I find like New Zealand kind of inherits that kind of Scottish spirit of independence and um, and that kind of uh, that kind of fierce honesty and integrity of um, of you know just of honoring the place and um, and really making it work here um, and doing something good and so that was that really drew me in was that Christchurch was humming and it was alive and it was it felt like it was ready to take a leap that most cities in the world were not right. And also, and, and probably won't be able to for many, many decades to come. Mm. Um, and yeah, between one thing and another, going back to the States, I just kept in touch and, uh, eventually, um, the, the team here just invited, invited me to come back and, mm. and just help out mm. and, uh, and jump in.
0: Yeah. And bring your understanding and your experience from back in Seattle and, Mm-hmm. And, and help here. So let's describe the project as it is right now here in mm-hmm. Um What is it that's been happening and what's happening right now? And what's your vision in terms of the next step, you know, the next year? What does it hold?
1: Mm-hmm. So Otakaro Orchard um, was really born out of this um, and the Food Resilience Network, which um, of which, you know, we are just a project Um was born out of this conversation around food security after the after the quakes um, Where we pretty quickly realized that there was only about three days of food on supermarket shelves um, and also that the despite being a garden city um, that the landscape we have here was not um, Didn't have a lot of food that was that felt accessible to people um, and so this was really a direct response to to sort of create an anchor um, for this multitude of these small local food projects mm-hmm. to come together and really um, and really uh, uh, create a, a center of gravity um, To uh, to sort of secure our operations mm-hmm. for the long term because so often in in nonprofit and in in this field of uh, grassroots projects we just we, we are so used to scraping by um, and just getting from one thing to the next, um, and barely making it. But we so rarely get a, a chance to um, build a place for ourselves where we can really, um, you know, stretch our wings and not just kind of crawl along, but really uh, get up on our feet and run and ultimately fly. Mm-hmm. So that's well, what this—that's what this really is. Yeah.
0: Well, it's great that you mentioned that because um, one of the people that you mentioned, Bailey, Bailey Perryman. Um, who co founded Cultivate Christchurch? He was one of the people I interviewed earlier in the series here of these uh, interviews. So, if people want to find out more about some of those aspects, they can listen back to him. Um, so, you arrive in Christchurch and you're involved in this network. Um, how long has that been going on for?
1: Mm, so, the Food Resilience Network got founded. Um, just a little a little over um, I would say three to four years ago that this conversation has been going on mm-hmm. um, so uh, I when I first got here I I jumped in um, when the project was about a about a year a year and a half to two years underway so I so I had to kind of uh, learn a lot of institutional memory very quickly right um, and put put the pieces together of what was happening in Christchurch um, but it was a great and a really great, uh, really competent, gifted, um, passionate team kind of working on this. Most of, most of whom were volunteer. Mm. Um, it's just one of their, one of their paid staff who's Chloe Waratini. Um, and essentially they just, uh, all of them really just kind of, uh, took me under their wing and just kind of helped, um, and just, uh, just got me right into the, into the thick of it. Mm. Um, actually I, uh, Erica and, um, and Chloe and Jess, uh, sort of, uh, Chucked me right into the um, into the middle of the Festa build, okay, Uh, and that was uh, October 2016. Was I? I literally arrived here at 8:30, and uh, I was in meetings by um, within the hour.
0: Wow! So there was about an hour of wasted time there, huh? Oh, that no, was terrible! <laughs> What's going on? Um, and uh, and yeah. yeah, the rest was history. It's yeah. been a whirlwind since then. That's really great. And um, just describe the space and how big it is. And um, people who are listening maybe have never been to Christchurch. Sort of where it is positioned, and you know, like Margaret Mehe Playground is quite close by. Like I'm assuming mm-hmm. there's some strategy there about where it is. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, um, so really, the uh, when um, in the in the sort of. Planning around the central city rebuild um, in the quakes um, of 2010 2011 mm. um, Christchurch lost about 80% of its of buildings in the central business di- district district um, along with another 602 hectares of space that was um, out in the east of the city Which yeah. we now call the residential red zone mm. all of this uh, area experienced intense liquefaction building damage and so on mm. so as this food resilience conversation was boiling over, um, the, Sarah, the planning authority, uh, asked the question, you know, why, why don't we put in a community garden mm. as, part of, as one of these anchor projects um, to rebuild this kind of, the character and the life of the city? And so... Of course, um, mm. it, we the FRN stuck our hands up and said, "We'll we'll do yeah. this. We can deliver it." Right? Yeah, yeah. So makes they, sense. <laughs> so we we successfully won a tender for that process. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and alongside the uh, Horticultural Society, who teamed up with us, mm. um, and so uh, Sarah handed us essentially a half acre parcel of land right on the bank of the Avon River. Mm. Um, if you just walk, if you walked about a minute east of the town hall, or um, or about two or three minutes uh, west of Margaret Makey Playground, you would find us right there on the bank mm. of of the Avon at um, Cambridge Terrace. Mm. And so they essentially handed us the land and said, go for it. So uh, over the next um, over the next year or so, there was a, a huge, um, huge conversation around, you know, what are we gonna do with this space and how is it going to look like and that that took shape over time. Mm. So now what we have uh, is um, of that half acre, about two thirds of that is designated as a public uh, food forest. So we have about thirty trees and shrubs in ground right now, um, which are all about a year and some old. But within five years, that whole landscape, with some ed- with some uh, annual uh, annual gardens around it, is going to be producing around a thousand kilos of food a year. Mm. Um, pretty much all of that's just going to be open open harvest. Um, Alongside that, um, we're going to have a community amphitheater um, and also a little 200 square meter building that's going to house a social enterprise cafe and new headquarters for the Canterbury Horticultural Society um, and ourselves. Mm. Um, So we've put in an immense amount of work and effort into this whole site to make it as as sustainable, as beautiful, um, and as accessible as we possibly can. Um, and so what we have now is actually a, an amazing sort of uh, collab- collaborative vision um, that we've built over the past few years between a, a really grassroots idea that's also, um, that's also uh, really setting a high bar um, for what a community co- can accomplish together that's mm. working with both the private sector and with government mm. at a couple levels. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of
0: players involved. Yes, there are. <laughs> A lot of people in the theater. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's good. And what is your hope for this that, uh, in terms of the future here in New Zealand and in other places? What's your vision like in five or ten years? What are you hoping people look at it and go, that's what made it distinctive or special? Or
1: Yeah. I think in, in five years what I'd love to see is that this is um, – as it's as it's designed to be this is just one anchor for the local food movement but this is a place where anyone whether you're an old-time resident or whether you're whether you're a policymaker or a tourist or just someone who's just someone who's looking for just a bite to eat if you can walk into this space and feel welcomed have have accessible food on hand and also be able to just dive into this kind of world that's already going on here in Canterbury of Um, this whole multitude of great stories from people growing food to making it um, to sending it around the country um, to just get wrapped up into that narrative um, and that we might be essentially a a flashpoint for that mycelial network so that if you if you wander into a taco orchard um, you'll find yourself uh, echoing out into many of the different community gardens, local restaurants, um, and other, other beautiful places around the city, mm. um, that we might be sort of a, one of many anchors of, this, of a 21st century, uh, world-class garden city. Mm.
0: Mm. Well, it makes sense. And like you say, it's always been known as Christchurch the Garden City. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of appropriate that there's going to be something like that here.
1: No, definitely. I feel yeah. like we, um, and I think many people feel like we need to if we're going to really retain that tile, we need to start pulling our weight more. Um, that it seems like in as the city has transformed over the last several years, we've um, we, one of the laments that I hear as as an outsider coming in, I, I hear all the time that people miss the um, the sort of uh, the the multiplicity of the city center sort of the way that there were so many nooks and crannies and little spots and little subcultural outlets there. Um, And I I completely understand that, that why I loved Edinburgh so much as a place was because it it felt like a like there was this, there were just a few um, there were some bones of the city, that the city had a great set of bones and very literally of these massive stone boulevards and and, you know, ancient terraces and so on. Um, but a sort of a, a basic framework that supported this huge coral reef of life that sort of sprung off of it. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I, I often talk with, um, with a, uh, Johnny Knope, mm-hmm. uh at, um, at Field Studio about this, that we want to see, um, you know, we want to see the foundation of a coral reef. That's the, that's really one of the fundamental missions of urban planning Mm. um, is that it, you know, it should be able that we don't have to, um, we don't have to invent uh, every facet of the picture Mm. from day one that we, we simply can't do that. We don't, we honestly just in, in building cities, we don't know what it's going to, who's going to be in it or what it's going to look like in a hundred years. But we can design some really basic Parameters to support that, and to make sure that it it stays a healthy place mm. for the coming centuries, and yeah. that's that's really why I why I make food forests. Yeah, um, is because I want to set up those ecosystems that are going to bring out the best in people.
0: Mm. Mm. It makes sense, and I'm just reminded of my father-in-law in England, and in World War II, they started um, dividing up some of the land, which they called allotments, and so you could get an allotment, which was a division like a rectangle you know of land that wasn't at your house it was off in this little spot near the village or wherever you happen to live and uh, it's amazing dedication they've in that family so my wife's family he's now been going there almost every day tending this allotment literally since World War Two. when it was his father's and then he took it over mm-hmm. and it and that's been his source of vegetables pumpkins Grapes, you know, all the fruits mm. and, and vegetables and yeah. and what you're describing here is, is kind of a similar concept, isn't it? That you're mm. actually building the infrastructure for food safety in the sense of the community can access and harvest and enjoy what's been grown.
1: Yeah. That really it's um it takes a, a small village to put a place like this together. So really it is um it is a you know, it's a it's this co-created anchor for community and food and um, and resilience and, mm. uh, and health mm. um, that honestly, for me, I think the uh, that a healthy urban ecology is the best form of preventative health care that we have mm. for cities. Yeah, no, that's
0: great. And if people want to find out more about this, because there might be people listening and go, wow, we should do something like this in our city, wherever they happen to be mm-hmm. listening. Um, where we do suggest they go to is Mr. Google, the friend to, yes. to find some information here. Are there some websites? Maybe we can put those in the show notes as well.
1: Definitely. Um, so if you go online and look up otaguroorchard.org, you'll find exactly what we're doing and, um, and a pretty good description of what's, what's happening to date. Um, if you want a bit of the bigger picture, I highly recommend um, that people look up the localizing food project which is a, a joint project of, um, of Rich Humphreys and uh, Rabina McCurdy um, Who are two wonderful wonderful storytellers here in New Zealand um, who have been looking at the local food movement for many many years um, And they have a great documentary. They just released um, called uh, either edible paradise or perennial paradise i think Mm. the titles shifted a little bit um but that's been a a beautiful expose of just profiling 15 of the food forest projects in Aotearoa, new zealand wow um out of the whole country we have about 150 projects running Mm. right now Mm. um which is fantastic it's really that's a really beautiful metric of um of health in the sort of in the local food movement, um, mm. and in a lo- and exemplifying a lot of folks who are who are just working with their community to um, to make a, a better, you know, more beautiful, inspiring place.
0: Mm. That's great because when you think about the population of New Zealand, it's actually not that big to have that many going right now. Um, well, let's yeah, we'll link to some of these things in the show notes, and if people are interested, they can find out more. Um, so Peter, we've talked a lot about, um, where you're from and what you've been doing and now your involvement here in Christchurch, um, I guess as someone who's relatively new to the city, you know, you've been here a couple of years, but where do you see the
1: future going? Well, I'd say my, my really profound hope, Stephen, is that we, um, is that we really look, look beyond the next two decades in, in how we're shaping our urban environment and really look to the next 200 to 500 years hmm. um, Right now we what we're grappling with as a city is that we have um, we have 602 hectares of um, mostly unbuildable land in the east of the city um, that is really heavily entwined with uh, a whole lot of memory and and ethic and sentiment um, and also possibility um, so one thing that we've been working on as the Food Resilience Network is to create a network of uh, community-led food-producing landscapes throughout this um, throughout this landscape, mm-hmm. as a as sort of a thread to tie together the the city center and and the east um, and all the way out to New Brighton.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's um, it's been really delightful to see that over the past year and some, we've had really a lot of interest in this that there's been about 15 unique projects already getting underway with this um who are working on their own their own sites and their own their own facets of that mm. um and also that at least from uh, from the most recent survey work that regenerates done and from all the feedback that we've gotten personally um we've seen tremendous amount of support for this about 85 percent of um Everyone who's responded in that kind of a public forum mm. um, has been really, really excited about this possibility mm. that in, um, in looking at this uh, at this, um, you know, at this opportunity, we um, we don't just see potential to, you know, create community and generate resources and accessibility and so on. But we're what we're honestly looking at is a new Potential and model for land stewardship. And so what we've um, what we've been working alongside is folks like um, Like of course the uh, Mahinga kai exemplar um, who really want to instill this ethic of stewardship um, across the entire city and to really embody that well mm. and also in, um, in Folks like the tiny house movement mm. um, Who have been coming up with these really brilliant ideas of how do we live with the land and how do we also um Live on it in such a way where we don't claim to have ownership of it. Mm. It's very presumptuous of us um, mm. But how do we actually how do we become the stewards of the land so that as we go about our lives? We are actually improving the place and um, and as we move on to, to other spots as uh, you know as our As our climate and our landscapes shift over the coming years um, That we are leaving it better and healthier than we've uh, than we have treated it in the mm. past Mm, That's
0: really great. One of the people I interviewed earlier was named Martin Large, and he's from the UK. And he was in New Zealand in Christchurch and gave some lectures and things. And he uh, has been involved in biodynamic land trusts in the UK. So his question in the interview when I was talking with him was this whole red zone. What if you created it into exactly what you're talking about, really, which is actually a a food source, and, and that you actually made it A place of life that was that the people could actually harvest from and and rather than um, looking for other options that this might be a unique opportunity so Mm -hmm. if people are interested in this they should listen to that one as well because we go into that quite a lot Mm -hmm. Um, yeah I mean as you know I'm a lawyer so one of the things that I'm wondering about and questioning is what role I can play in terms of community ownership of land so um, one of the people that we jointly knows Kamiya young and she set up Ohu um, which is looking at this idea of ownership of land and one of the things we're doing from a legal perspective is thinking through well how would you actually do this in a society which is all about the individual and my name Stephen Moe means that it's written on this piece of paper so Mm -hmm. I own that land how would you actually restructure things so that you could say well actually this is a community that owns the land, rather than an individual, that it's actually something that you're stewarding and shepherding for the future and for the next generations, mm. which which actually is more challenging than it sounds, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. the the previous way of doing things has been very focused on I own it or you own it. We don't both own it. So mm-hmm. it's a really fascinating area.
1: Yeah. Mm. No. And so that's a really, it's a really, really exciting time we're in in Christchurch mm-hmm. in a way that... Um, as someone new to the city, um, I also kind of see this, that we're at, um, what, what is happening in the city right now are questions that most places in the world don't get to grapple with, but for once in a couple centuries, yeah. that really what we, what we have the chance to do here in the next few years is create, is really create a, uh, a model and set a precedent for many parts of the rest of the world, mm. um, in a way that, uh, that others won't get to try out. But if, if we can do something that's really meaningful mm. and really special here, then we're going to see those, those ripples echo outward mm. far beyond our, our conceptions. And,
0: and probably in ways that you don't even expect. And over time frames that you're unaware of, for example, when you were told, well, actually what you're doing here in Seattle has resulted in maybe yeah. 50 other people doing it. And you didn't even know, right? Yeah. Like who knows where, uh, where the, the pebble that lands in the pond, right? The ripple yeah. goes out. So Entirely. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah. And just, I guess, thinking about your generation um, and moving around the globe, do you think we're moving into a time where it's possible to do this sort of living in multiple parts of the world? I only ask because one of the other people I've interviewed is your friend, Jonathan Lee. Mm-hmm. And I know in his interview, he said the reason he came to Christchurch is that he had a friend Named Peter Wells who said you should come and check it out and it's and at the time I think he was in Nepal and before that he was involved in Seattle mm-hmm. and it just seems like there's a, there's a new awareness of the globe and mm-hmm. moving around and communities encouraging each other whether you're in New Zealand or in Seattle or in Nepal or
1: in the UK or whatever um, can you just comment o- on that absolutely and I really, I like that you specify that it's communities encouraging each other. What makes that sense of travel and communication possible um, is, a, is a shared ethic and a really core integrity that for a long time, we've treated many, a, a lot of people treat travel as, as though it is, um, you know, just a, it's a checkbox. It's, you know, I want to. Go around the world and I want to see these 20 countries, you know And I want to go to as many as possible and and then I'll go home and say I saw everything and you know Then I'll put it on my Facebook and then all's well. Um, I Think if we keep doing that we're gonna bankrupt ourselves of our own cultural capital that What we what we need to be doing here is learning from each other but also giving back to the place. So that's for me, that's fundamental. Whenever I go somewhere mm-hmm. new, I don't like to, you know, just show up and take a few pictures and wander off again. I, I'm just sort of, uh, beholden to my guts in giving something back to the place and really respecting, respecting what it is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that, I think that's, that is fundamental that it's, we have this beautiful romantic vision of being able to globe trot around the world, um, if if we're going to do that, we have to fundamentally uh, appreciate and and give something back to the places that we go. Um, that when I was in Costa Rica, I saw a lot of this of um, of uh, tourists and foreign economies bankrupting this beautiful place um, just because they could take their little slice of paradise home with them, um, and really and at the end of the day, um, they they left nothing. Um, But their footprints and their trash Um, So I think that's if we're if we're gonna see this this global culture really thrive It's only going to be on the back of this shared ethic um, and this real and this real love for for our Our own and each other's different communities um, and being able to really kind of light each other up like that Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I think there is a real growing sense of interconnectedness across the world like when you compare it to previous generations where maybe mm. you'd get on a ship and you'd be there in two months and we have that like you say we have that ability to travel um which which is a wonderful thing and i think mm-hmm. it is something we probably take for granted our generations probably mm. just oh yeah I'm gonna go off to this place but i think what you're describing is about being more than a tourist mm-hmm. that you go to places but you're giving back to the places that you're visiting as well yeah
1: likewise i feel like sometimes i feel like travel's too easy you know that we that we should have to work for it a little more and really uh you know to make it meaningful in in getting to a place and being there so we appreciate it Mm -hmm. um
0: yeah no that's great well looking back uh, we started talking about the theater and dance and all these things and you you were describing how related to what you do now and when you said that initially I wasn't really understanding what you're meaning but I think I do now because you're right when you're in a theater and you feel like you're part of the show like you are the audience is actually has to be there to give the energy to the actors who then are working and uh, feeding off of each other and then thinking about what you're describing in terms of the edible food for us this isn't about an individual who has an idea and somehow conquers the world with that one idea this is about the community being involved and then ultimately receiving food from that Mm -hmm. so I think it's been a really helpful picture to have through threaded through our conversation Um, and I guess the last thing to do is to say thank you very much for your time and coming and chatting with me I feel like I've learned a lot through our conversation so um, keep doing the great work you're doing and I'll watch with interest how the orchard develops, and um, I'll definitely bring my kids down, and we can sample some fruit and vegetables at some Mm, point.
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's no, thank you for having me on, Stephen, and I'm really, really excited to keep listening to these as time goes on, and keep diving into other people's worlds. Yeah,
0: yeah, it feels to me like it's chapters in a book, and that every chapter, every episode is like a different chapter, and they're very, very different you know, like your friend Jonathan, we talked about photography the whole time, pretty much. Camilla, um, we talked about architecture. Martin, about biodynamical interest. And yet, there is sort of a cohesiveness to it. And I think it comes down to the people and, and their sense of purpose and what they're doing. So it's been great to have you on and um, be part of that. Mm-hmm. Shout out to ReEdit. You better be listening
1: to this. I hear a book coming on.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, um, that's all for now. Thank you for joining me today. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Peter. We certainly touched on a wide range of topics ranging from dance to theater to edible food for us. If you are interested in what they're doing down there at the Otakaro Orchard, I encourage you to check out their website and go along to some of the public events that they have from time to time. It'll be really fascinating to watch it grow, and I look forward to supporting it as a great initiative for our community. Now, next week's episode, we're going to go in a different direction, talking about genetic engineering, but also about NASA and the space program. Sarah Kessens is a research fellow at the University of Canterbury, and I have a fascinating conversation with her that touches on many different topics. Here's an excerpt from that interview. Synthetic biology is a great tool, but like any tool, it can be used for good or for evil. And, uh, you know, ethics is a very big part of Mm. synthetic biology and understanding you know, what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. And so as far as biology is concerned, I mean, theoretically, you could make an apple nectarine. Like, yeah. it would be a lot of work. There's a <laughs> lot of genes that have to go into, you know, putting one into the other to, sure. to get sort of the product that you're looking for. But theoretically, because we all share the same DNA, you know, it's sort of possible. That sounds, you know, sort of out there. And again, that's not our purpose um, as synthetic biologists is to, you know, just go and, you know, create and sort of what they say, play God, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's not our goal. Um, our goal is to to solve problems but i mean in theory we can do a lot with synthetic biology um you know sort of mixing and matching of of genes well i do hope you can join me for that and other upcoming episodes until next time